You're listening to audio from Calvary Gravenhurst in Muskoka, Ontario. For more resources or to connect with someone in the church, please visit calvarygravenhurst.com. This week's sermon is taught by pastor of Next Generations, Mark Hockley. My name is Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to be with you this morning. I'm excited, as always, to dive into God's Word with you, to sing with you, to pray with you. Uh, what a fantastic, fantastic morning. Let's, let's pray together first. God, I just thank you um, so much for another day. And Lord, I pray that you would um, continue to teach my heart um, what we sing that nothing in this world can satisfy. God, I know that in my head, and yet so often uh, my heart can wander. God, and it can start to try to find other things that satisfy when only you satisfy. God, I pray, God, that I would know, God, deep in my heart that Christ is enough for everything and that I would follow you, that I would fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith, the joy set before him. God, I pray for that. God, we thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. I pray that our lives would ring back in praise, Lord, to you. God, we love you so much. God, help us today, God, to be attentive, Lord, to your word. Allow us to be encouraged and convicted. God, we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we are starting a new series in Philippians, and so we're going to be working through um, the book of Philippians over the next number of weeks, and so today we're going to do a little intro into Philippians so that you have a little bit of background about the book, and then we're going to dive into 1, 1 through 18, and we're just going to work our way through it, and so I would encourage you to get into Philippians chapter 1. But first, the introduction. So the book of Philippians, it was written by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing from prison. And he's writing to the church at Philippi. And so let's talk a little bit about Philippi, the city, first of all. And the city of Philippi was known for its plentiful springs and its nearby gold mines. The city of Philippi uh, received its name from Philip II of Macedon, who conquered it. Um, And it literally means the city of Philip. Um, Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great. Um, Hopefully you remember him from history class. He put much of um, the known world under Greek control, but ultimately his empire fell. And the Roman Empire uh, became the dominant empire of the day. Um, And why am I telling you this? Because it's important to remember who this is being written to, right? And when someone's receiving this letter, we can have understanding and insight in the text if we understand who these people were. And so this case, the people that were in Philippi, they were people of Greek descent, right? So they had had Greek history, Greek ideas, and they ultimately were gifted Roman citizenship. They became Romans, and that's important for us to know. There's Philippi there on a map. If you look up in the top um, by Thessalonica there, you can see Philippi, and you'll see many of the other well-known biblical cities, Jerusalem, the two different Antiochs, which can always confuse us, um, Corinth, 
Rome. You can see lots of them there. This is an artist's rendering of what they think um, ancient Philippi could have looked like back in the day. And we also have a number of um, examples now of what we can still see ruins of what the city of Philippi looked like. And I wanted to show you these things just to remind you that this is, th- these are real people. Um, and this was a real church in a real point in history. It's not something just up in the clouds. Uh, one more thing to talk about with Philippi. Um, this is, let's just talk briefly about the Battle of Philippi. And I promise this has something to do with churches, not just history. And um, the Battle of Philippi was one of the turning points in Roman history. It ended the Roman Republic and it ushered in the age of the Roman Empire. And so in 42 BC, the forces of Antony and Octavian, they defeated uh, the forces of Brutus and Cassius at the Battle of Philippi. And this was significant. Um, And so you're like, I don't care. Uh, This is significant for a reason. Philippi grew because of this in its recognition. It grew in its importance and it expanded. And one of the ways that it expanded is that many of the veterans of the Roman army settled in Philippi. It also moved because of this battle from being a province to a Roman colony. And as a colony, this was important. As a colony, Philippi gained autonomy from the provincial governments, and they had the same rights as the cities in Italy. This meant that they could use Roman law, they were exempt from some taxes, and most importantly, all their residents were granted Roman citizenship. This was a huge source of pride for the people of Philippi. And so then it makes sense to us in chapter 3 that Paul would use the example of us being gifted citizenship, of now being citizens of heaven. And we can see why that means so much to them. Let's talk a little bit about the founding of the Philippian church. You can turn if you want for a second. Leave your finger in Philippians. We're going to get back there. But you can go to Acts 16. We, we learn a little bit about the Philippian church. So, in Acts chapter 16, we see that Paul had a vision that um, he should go to Macedonia, and so he obeys, and he goes, and he goes to preach the word of God to Macedonia. And you can read all of it, you can skim it if you want, but we'll just look at this one little part here. In Acts 16, 13 through 15, it says, on the Sabbath day, we were outside of the gate, the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman gathered there, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay with us at my house. And she persuaded us. Why don't you look just quickly at verse 13 for a second, what was Paul's normal practice when he went into a new city? Right? When you read the book of Acts, Paul normally goes, and he goes into a synagogue to talk to people about the word of God and to try to convince the Jews right, that Christ is the Messiah, that he's the one that they were looking for. But you notice here, he didn't go to a synagogue, and that's because there was no synagogue. Um, to create a synagogue in a city, you needed um, 10 men from different families, 10 family heads, essentially, and that's what would create a synagogue. And so they didn't even have that in the city of Philippi. And so there's very little um, sort of godly influence at all or even thoughts about God in the city of Philippi. 
And so they, instead, they go to the river, notice this, where they expected to find a place of prayer. The other thing I just want you to notice in this is that it's the Lord who opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. And a good reminder that when you preach the gospel, notice who is the one that does the work. And so this was the start of the Philippian church. Uh, we have Lydia and her household is the start of the Philippian church. And then if you read a little bit farther down, we, we won't go through it all for sake of time, but you can, we'll summarize for you, right? There's this um, girl who's got a demon in her, and she's following Paul around, and um, she's getting, Paul gets annoyed with her, and so he casts the demon out of her. And so the owner is angry because he was making money off the girl who had the demon in her. And so Paul and Silas, they get thrown into jail. And then we, we have this famous passage that many of us know, right, where they're in jail and then an earthquake happens, right? There's an earthquake and notice what happened. Everyone should have escaped. I mean, this is kind of a tangent, but it's a good tangent. This is a lesson in being attentive to the Holy Spirit and having a kingdom mindset. Think about it, because if you were in prison and you're praying, you're like, oh God, get me out of this, get me out of this. I, I don't want to be in prison. And then an earthquake happens. What are you thinking? Hallelujah. God answered my prayer right? I'm getting out of Dodge. That's, that's what I want to do. But that's not what they did here. They, everyone should have escaped, and yet everyone here stays. Because I believe the Holy Spirit told them not to leave, right? And this is different, because in other examples, we have Peter. When the angel comes and breaks Peter out of prison, what does he do? He's out, right? And he's gone. And so there's a great example here of being really attentive to the Holy Spirit and having that kingdom mindset because what happens, the jailer was supposed to, he was going to kill himself, right? Because back then, if all your prisoners escaped, you were going to die. So he's like, I'm just going to kill myself because all the prisoners are going to escape. But because no one escaped, the jailer instead has the opportunity to listen to Paul and Silas as they share the gospel with him and him and his whole household are saved. And what a beautiful, beautiful example of listening to the Spirit. Of God, And so the church in Philippi was born just like that with Lydia and her household and a jailer and his household, maybe a formerly demon-possessed girl, maybe a few more people. That's the start of this church that we're looking at. That's the start of the church of Philippi. And yet when we get to our text today and what you're going to see in the book of Philippians, we read about this beautiful, strong, and healthy church. And it's a wonderful reminder of what God can do, right? This, there was nothing crazy impressive about these people and what was going on. And yet God moved them and grew them into this wonderful and healthy church. A few themes to watch for just in the book of Philippians. I won't give you everything, but just a few. One of them is experiencing joy in Christ. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. Joy is something that's mentioned 18 times in the book of Philippians. When something's mentioned that often, what you know is that that's a primary theme that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us something about. So we can learn about experiencing joy in Christ by pursuing Christ-likeness, right? That's another big theme of Philippians. And we pursue Christ-likeness in the body of Christ, right? In the church. This is not just something that we do on our own. So often we can read these from our Western individualistic mindset and think about these on our own. But when we, when we actually read these books, we realize that this is to the church and they're supposed to do these things together, right? To pursue Christ together in the body of Christ to the glory of God and that's scattered throughout the book of Philippians. All right, let's dive into Philippians 1, 1 through 18. 
I want you to notice here um, before we get going that as we talk through things today, you're going to notice that there's a number of things that we've already been studying this past month and a half. And I promise I didn't plan this, um, but as I was studying, it was very, very interesting to me that obviously God is reminding us of some things that he wants us at Calvary to learn because these themes keep coming up over and over again. And so we pray that you would watch for those be attentive to those and ask the Holy Spirit uh, what he wants to do with that with you. So let's read verses 1 through 11. We'll break it up into two chunks. We'll talk about one chunk and then the other. Philippians 1, starting at verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always remembering with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I deeply miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love would keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. And praise of God. We're going to work through this first section. We're just going to go a couple of verses at a time and we'll break them down. So verses one and two, we can see right away that they've grown into a healthy church, right? What did we see? We see they have overseers, right? Oh, there's pastors, bishops, all the same thing in the Bible. They have overseers, they have deacons, they have a healthy church leadership the way that God had intended it, Right? That's one of the things that I want you to grab from verse 1 and 2. We could get more into it, but we don't have time. Um, verses 3 through 5. I want to show you this. Notice that this was something that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Look what he does. Paul is thankful for other Christians. Right? If you remember that from that prayer chart that I had up a few weeks ago, this, is, this wasn't the verse I chose, but here's another example of it. He thanks God for other believers. And to thank God for other believers is something that has been transformative in my own prayer life, say in the past two years. And praying this way has brought me so much joy in my life as I come to God and I thank him for you, right? Individually, not just thank you God for the church, but I will pray and thank God for you guys individually. And this has done four things in my life that I want to just share with you. Number one, it increases in my heart a love for all of you, right, as brothers and sisters in Christ. As I pray and I thank God for you, it increases my love for you as brothers and sisters in Christ. Number two, it reminds me of who really changes people. Because when I I don't come to God and say, God, thank you that I've changed this person's life, right? That doesn't happen when you get before the throne of God. What do you do? You get on your face and you say, God, thank you for changing that person's life. Thank you for the growth that I see. Thank you for the perseverance and pain that I see. Thank you for the perseverance through struggle that I see. It points me back to God because as I examine their life, as I examine your lives, I see the things that God is doing and that points me back to him. 
Number three, it also helps to guard unity. If you remember a long time ago, we talked about one of the church's primary jobs is to guard the unity in Christ that God has called us to. And um, I'm sure there's ways that I fail all of you. There's, I know there's ways that I fail. I am so far from perfect. I'm sure there's things I do that annoy you or even frustrate you. Um, and just once in a blue moon, maybe I experience the same thing back the other way around. And yet when I pray for you, it helps to mold unity over top of any frustration right, or annoyance right, that comes with broken humans trying to do life together. right? Anywhere where the enemy tries to drive a wedge, right, it builds unity over top of that. And I want to encourage you that this is also helpful in your family life. right? Kids, maybe your parents annoy you. right? Maybe your siblings annoy you. Right? Pray for them. Right? Do you thank God for your parents? Do you thank God for your siblings? That will help you in that struggle. Right? Same thing. If you have a spouse, you got a spouse that annoys you, how often do you thank God for them? Right? And not just generally thanking God for them, but actually thanking God for the specific things that you've seen Him do in their life. Do you thank God for your spouse? And in those moments, where you're frustrated or annoyed or even worse, that's something that's going to help to guard the unity that God's desired for you in your marriage. And number four, it brings joy. If you look at verses four and five, I want you to notice this. Notice that joy is produced in Paul in verse four, right, as he prays, right? Always praying with joy for you in my prayer. And what I believe is that the text is showing us that this uh, method, right? This method of praying for others, right? Joy is produced through prayer for other Christians. And the reason that we see that joy is produced, according to the text, look at verse 5. What does it say in verse 5? Right? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The reason for the joy was because of their genuine salvation. Right? That Paul saw their genuine salvation and that was worked out because of the fruit that they were producing in their life. The fact that they were actually partnering in the gospel. And so we can see that there together. Right, That um, joy is produced through praying for other believers because of their genuine salvation. Right? And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. I also want you to notice in verse 5 that word, participation in verse 5, right? Their receiving of the gospel was demonstrated as genuine by how they lived out their lives, right? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something we've been talking about? They were producing genuine fruit, right? And notice this. I want you to notice this. This was a channel of grace and joy to others, not just to themselves, right? When we live for Christ, it's not just a blessing to us, but it's a blessing to others, And so because of how they were living for Christ, and because Paul was praying for them, they were experiencing joy in Christ. Ralph P. Martin says this. I thought this was interesting. He says, We today might take the lesson to heart that the sign of our professed love for the gospel is the measure of sacrifice we are prepared to make in order to help its progress. So often we profess to love God, profess to love the gospel. Here's a litmus test for you, right? I like giving you those. I think they're helpful, right? Take this test, right? What level are you willing to go to? What level of sacrifice are you willing to give in order that the gospel 
would progress, right? That will tell you how much you love the gospel. That will tell you how much love in your heart you have for the Lord by how, will, how far you're willing to go. So we looked at one and two. We looked at three and five. Let's look at verse six. Moving on. Notice this in verse six. What does it say right at the start? That he who began a good work in you, right? It was God, right? God's renewing and redeeming work will reach its climax in the day of Christ Jesus, right? What does that mean? That means in the day of the Lord. Old Testament people, you guys know this, right? The day of the Lord, right? That's looking forward to when Christ returns. He's talking about the future. He's talking about eternity. Why does he point us to eternity? Because he's pointing us to from here, the God, he's the one that started the work and he wants to continue working on you until the day when Christ comes back and he makes you new. What a beautiful thing. J. Alec Moitier also says this um, in concert with that. He says, the perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God with the saints. How encouraging is that? Right, because we know that God perseveres. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. Notice this. He says, you are all partners with me in grace. The closeness that Paul is experiencing with the Philippian believers is because they share the same grace. Right? That's why we are to have this closeness as believers. We've all experienced the same grace from God, right? We've all experienced as Christians that Jesus, the Savior of the world, he died in our place, right? He took my sin, he took your sin, right? And he died so that we could have life. And then he came back to life, right? Showing he had the power over sin, over death, right? And that's why we have fellowship in suffering, in pain, but also in joy, right? It's because we have this common grace in Christ. We've all had this common experience with God, in verse 8, to say, what a, th- what a thing to strive for, for God is my witness, how I deeply miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Is that the kind of love that you have for these people here? Do you deeply miss them when you're not here? Do you have a deep affection for the people of God? Let's look at verses 9 through 11 next. Um, Now we come to another category that we had up on that chart a couple of weeks ago. And I want you to notice this. Notice that Paul doesn't just thank God for other believers. He also prays for their spiritual growth. Let's read this again. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be made pure and blameless in the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice this. They were a wonderful, healthy, generous church, but they still had room to grow. Sound familiar? You guys are a wonderful, healthy, generous church, right? And yet we push you, right? Because we all have room still to grow. And their area of growth that they needed to grow in was unity. They were a growing church we're a growing church. And one of the things that we know with growing churches that is increasingly difficult to do is it's increasingly difficult to be unified. They were struggling with fault finding and disunity. And so what does Paul pray for, right? He prays this first, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. Let's break that down a little bit. Better knowledge of what, 
right? The answer is more like better knowledge of who, right? The answer is God. A better knowledge of God is the first step to growth. If you want to grow, the first step is to have a better knowledge of God, right? So that's why we encourage you to get in your Bible, but that's why we don't just only encourage you to be in your Bible, right? Because it's only the first step to growth. And then notice what else he prays for. Discernment can also be translated as depth of insight. Some of your Bibles might have that. Or it can even be translated as wisdom. This is the same Greek word that the Septuagint uses in Proverbs, often for the word wisdom. You guys remember talking about wisdom, right? We talked about that. We've talked about it for a couple of weeks. What do wise people do? Wise people, they fear the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It means that they are obedient to the Lord. It's living out the knowledge of God. So you have a knowledge of God that you learned about him, and then you actually experience it. You actually live it out, and you realize that it's true, right? And this helps us be made more into the likeness of God. And what does that produce? That produces, look at verse 11, that produces the fruit, right? The fruit of righteousness, right? And where does the fruit of righteousness come from? Look at your text. Fill with the fruit of righteousness that comes through who? That comes through Jesus Christ, right? Remember we talked about that a few weeks ago? That true and genuine fruit resembles the character of God, right? It resembles Jesus. When we're being made to look more like Jesus, that's when we recognize and we're living that out. That's when we're actually producing real fruit, right? It's in the power of the Spirit. And notice this, just reinforcing what we talked about a few weeks ago. What was its purpose, right? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, where? To the glory and praise of God. That's why we live. That's why we produce the fruit. It's to the glory and the praise of God. And I want you to notice one more thing before we jump into our second chunk. You know how we talked about them needing to grow? We could also maybe say that what they really needed was some correction, right? Which we also talked about a few weeks ago. Notice how these things just keep coming up. I want you to notice the first thing he does. This is something we didn't have time to talk about at the outdoor service. The first thing that he does is he prays. And I would encourage you in that too. If there's someone in your life who requires correction, do you first pray for them? Does, do you, does that drive you to your knees to get on your knees and pray for that person, right? Pray for them first. If you want to see a change in your spouse or a change in your sibling or a change in a parent, get on your knees and pray first, right? Because if you want them to actually be changed, we know where change comes from. Where does it come from? It comes from God, right? And so if the change is going to last, if the change is going to be real, it comes from God So I'm not saying just pray, right? Don't be a coward. Pray first, then go to them, right? As we talked about a few weeks ago. And if they aren't a believer, pray for their soul. Let it drive you to pray for their soul. And yet there's still times where we do need to go to um, non-believers as well, right? And so that might be a thing you need to do. But first, pray. Pray for them. All right, let's look at the second chunk, verses 12 through 18. Verses 12 through 18. Let's read it together. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel 
so that has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the believers have gained confidence in the Lord for my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. I want you to notice one thing from this text. That eyes fixed on Christ produces joy in Christ. When you fix your eyes on Christ, it produces joy in Christ. Let's break it down and show you what I mean. Okay, because there's really, we see here in this text, we see two big problems in Paul's life, right? Two reasons, two big reasons to get discouraged and frustrated and angry. Right? He's got two reasons to doubt the faithfulness or even the reality of God, right? What does it say in our text? We see our two things here. Number one, he's in prison, Right? And the Holy Spirit put him in prison. Right? Because we know the Holy Spirit told him to go to Jerusalem originally and that he knew that he was going to go to prison and eventually die. Right? So that's the path that God led him on. And number two, we have Christian preachers that are seemingly happy that Paul is in prison. Right? Potentially out of jealousy. We're not really sure. So the ones that should have been his brothers are against him. Right? The ones that should have been on their knees are for, um, and before him and said they're gloating about his imprisonment. Right? For all we know, these are some of the people that he would have trained in the church. And yet now they are against him. And I know that many of you today, I don't know all of you, but I know many of you, come with significant pain. And you come with your own reasons to be frustrated or discouraged or angry, to doubt the faithfulness of God. And some of you doubt, right, whether he's really there and whether he cares because of the things you're going through. And I will always love this saying that Matt Chandler uses. He says this, it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay there. It's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay there. And I want you to know that first and foremost, that it is okay not to be okay. In the circles that we run in as Baptists, um, we put an unhealthy amount of time in projecting this image of being okay, that everything is good, right? Because it's ridiculous and it's not biblical, right? We're all a mess, right? Can we say, hey, Menda, we're all a mess, right? I'm so far from perfect, it's not even funny, right? And we fight messes that were created by the consequences of our sin, and we also fight messes because it's messy and painful to live in a broken and sinful world. And so it's okay not to be okay. And for those of you who are feeling that way, just want you to know I'm glad that you fought to be here today, right? And to value being with other Christians. But I want you to notice this in our text, that Paul's also going to give us part of the key uh, for how to live joyfully despite our circumstances. And it's this, fix your eyes on Jesus, fix your eyes on the gospel, Fix your eyes on the goal of life, right? Bring glory to God. And that is easy to say. It's much harder to do. But 
I can't, it doesn't escape that it doesn't make it not true just because it's hard to do, right? We're going to see it in this text that it is true. I want, I want to show you both of these things, right? Because he doesn't just come out and say that in our text. Instead, he shows you in response to the trials how his brain is oriented. And so I want you to look at that. Let's look at the first one. Look at what he says in response to being in prison. He doesn't view his personal comfort as the goal of his life. What instead does he do? He fixes his eyes on the gospel, right? What does he see? He sees that being in prison is an amazing opportunity to share the good news with Roman soldiers, some of whom are going to travel all over the known world. He says, praise God for this. God gave me this incredible opportunity, right? I don't have Twitter. I'm going to use this, right? And I get to use these people. I get to share with them, and then they're going to go everywhere, and they get to preach. Praise God for that. And he doesn't just stop there. What else does he see? He also sees opportunities to encourage other believers. How? What does he say? Look at the text. Because when they saw that his imprisonment, right, didn't stop the spread of the gospel, they began to speak more fearlessly, right? Because they realized that the thing that they feared the most couldn't stop the goal of their life. Do you see that? Right? How you view the goal of your life in the situation, it deeply defines your response, right? So if we view our lives through the lens of comfort, as Paul could have done, prison's not a good situation, right? Not comfortable, not nice. But viewed through the eyes of eternity, it was a glorious opportunity to continue to do what Paul had been trying to do, what was the goal of his whole life. What was the goal of his whole life, right? It provided fresh and new ways to share the gospel and to encourage believers to the glory of God. That's what Paul lived for. And that's what allowed him to say, this is great. This is good. This is not bad. Because he oriented his life, right? He was accomplishing his life's goal. Right, Because his eyes were fixed on Christ. They were f- fixed on the gospel. Let's look at the second one because it's very similar. Right, Look at what he says in response to his Christian brothers turning their back on him. Right, He doesn't worry about his own image. Right, This is a PR nightmare for Paul. Right, like Everyone's out there. They get to say whatever they want. He's in prison. He gets no chance to hold interviews or clap back or anything like that. No. right? They're, they can say whatever they want about him. Right? But he doesn't worry about that. He doesn't worry about his image. He doesn't worry about revenge. Look at the text. What does he do? He rejoices. Paul rejoices. Why does he rejoice? He rejoices because per- Christ is preached. The image that he cares about isn't himself. The image that he cares about is Christ. Right? What's he been trying to do his whole life? He's been trying to preach Christ. And so that's being accomplished. And so what does he do? He rejoices. What a beautiful, beautiful example for us of how to orient our thinking, right, towards eternity. Where we fix our eyes determines whether or not we will find joy when life is painful and difficult and discouraging. We have two great examples here. So let's sum all this stuff up. Joy is found in Christ. Where do we see that joy is found in Christ? Where did we see it in our text today? Number one, by being thankful for other believers. But when you're thankful for other believers, that's going to produce more joy in your life. And I don't know about you, but I, can, I see a whole world full of people looking for more. 
joy. Number two, what do we see? Praying for the spiritual growth of other believers, that's going to produce joy in your life. Number three, persevering with other believers, that's going to produce joy. Number four, loving other believers, right? Deeply and genuinely, right? Not fake, but deep and genuine. That produces real joy in your life. Pursuing Christ's likeness with other believers that produces joy. And finally this, fixing our eyes on Christ through painful trials. That will allow you to experience joy despite of the things that you are going through. Right? Because your mind is fixed on eternity. And you're thinking about eternal goals, not temporary ones. And so, is it easy to say? Yeah, is it harder to do? Yeah, I would encourage you to pray for it, right? Because it's not, it's not just something to um, take lightly. But um, it, is, it is the goal. It is the antidote. It is the cure, right, for your discouragement, your pain, and your anger, right? It's to fix your eyes. And you use whatever you're going through as an opportunity for God instead of seeing it as just causing problems in your life. Because we all, have, we all have those opportunities because we live in a broken and sinful world and we are sinful people. We all screw up. We all make our own messes as well. But we have the opportunity to bring glory to God through them. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon audio. For more resources or to connect with us, visit calvarygravenhurst.com.